Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we delight in your words. We delight in your Spirit. We say, Come, Holy Spirit, and enter into our hearts afresh. Cause us to be uh, reinvigorated, cause us to be recharged with the light of your truth. Cause us to see the Messiah once again, over and over again in the text before us. Cause us to fall in love with him on a daily basis. Help us, Lord, to press in, to uh, seek to be um, hungry and thirsty for your righteousness. Help us to um, be circumspect, uh, taking a... uh, a stance for the truth, taking a position uh, for your kingdom, um, being bold in our witness, uh, not shrinking back when it comes to living according to righteousness and according to your standards. We thank you, Lord, for this awesome privilege that you have given to us to carry your words along to the peoples around us. Uh, You've commissioned us to go and to preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of of, of, uh, your uh, um, truth, baptizing them in uh, in uh, your um, um, in uh, in your authority. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we have been chosen as ambassadors. Help me, Father, tonight to uh, speak clearly, to think clearly, to convey words uh, that you would have me say. I pray that you will allow the students to uh, engage uh, in the study, to listen, to understand, to remember and to take words of truth uh, from this place uh, to those around them. Um, Be with us, Father, as we uh, embark on basically a new Torah reading cycle, and uh, we just finished the the fall festivals, and we are so uh, pumped, we're so jazzed that you have not forgotten us, that you are our God and that we are your people, and that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Continue to give us a hope that is only found in Messiah Yeshua. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in all of these things. Amen. Let's date stamp our recording for those of you who are joining me. Uh, Today is October the 29th, 2016. And this is a study on exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehila Tunuva in Thornton, Colorado. If you live in Colorado near the North Denver area, certainly welcome to 
join the congregation every week, every Shabbat service. Um, however, I don't live in Colorado. I'm coming to you live from South Korea. And uh, so if you visit my congregation, you're got going to see me there. But you're certainly welcome to join me every week live uh, for the Galatians study. We meet every week, every Saturday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So if you live in a different time zone, just make the conversion. And we work our way through a commentary that I wrote on the book of Galatians. It's about 180 pages, and you can find it online at www.tetzetorah.com. That's my home website, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R. A-H. Click on the very top uh, and that in that banner section uh, that tells you about the live um, internet study about Galatians, or just click on the Galatians commentary link and scroll down through the page and you'll find the information about the live study. Uh, registration is free. I don't charge anything. And if you can't make it, well then tune in to the iTunes podcast uh, as I upload them a few days after the live study. Just head on out to iTunes and Google search my name. Uh, or hit my website at tatesaytor.com and click on the Galatians commentary link and scroll down through the page and you'll find the audio recordings are parked on my website as well. Without further ado, let's open with some liturgy, as I'm fond of doing, reading some Hebrew and some Greek. I will use the uh, Birkat the Torah, again, for the blessing of the learning of the Torah for this section that we're in tonight. Um... Birkat Torah, the blessing for the learning of the Torah, can be found in any standard Jewish prayer book as well. Let me read the English first, and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew. Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who chose us from the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you. And may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's go back and read the Hebrew of that as well. Baruch atah Adonai lochinu melech haolam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotai v'tzivanu la'asuk b'divrei Torah v'ha'arev na Adonai lochinu et divrei Torah tacha b'finu ufiot ufiot amcha beit Yisrael v'nihye anachnu v'tzetzeinu Vatsetsa Shalom. All right, let's entertain some liturgy from the Apostolic Scriptures. Many people call this the New Testament. Um, I'm reading this time from Galatians chapter 3, and I want to read a, a lengthy portion this time. I want to go all the way from verse 1, all the way through verse... Uh, let's go through verse 14 this time. And... Um, 
I want to read this passage because we're going. To, we're really in a section in my commentary where we're talking about Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham and, and Abraham's justification by faith and not by works, so to say. So let's read this wonderful passage from Paul, Galatians 3, 1 through 14. It reads, this is the English Standard Version. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Such a wonderful passage. I wish we had time to stop and really just exegete that entire uh, chapter there. But don't worry, we actually will once we reach that point in our commentary. Just want to remind everyone, we are on week 43, and we go for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, so each semester is 10 weeks long, and we're on week 43 right now, so we really just started a new, a new semester. Let's jump into some Greek. I'll go back and pull up the Greek of that same passage. I'm using the Nestle 1904 Greek New Testament for this selection. Actually, you know what? Let's pull it up using an interlinear chapter version so you can see the Hebrew and, the, I'm sorry, the Greek and the English. For those of you who are in the class with me live, um, you can see on the screen, I, at least I hope you can see on the screen, I've got uh, an interlinear version going on, uh, got some Greek, got some transliteration above, uh, above that, and then below that I've got kind of a wooden word-for-word -word translation. And then we've got all of the, uh, the kind of the parsings and, and conjugations of the parts of speech and things like that. Um, by the way, after the class, uh, stick around for the after chat session, usually about 10 or 15 minutes long after the hour-long teaching. Those of you who are in the live class with me will be able to unmute your microphones and Skype, and we can chat with one another and discuss uh, anything we'd like. So let's go back and read the Greek of that as best as I can approximate it. Uh, the Greek reads... Uh, Oh, 
ex aquis pistios, and in verse 3, Hutas anoi toi este in arx amenoi, pnumati nun sarki epateleste, tu saute epatate eke, ege kai eke, verse 5, ho un epicoregon, human toi pnuma kai in ergon dunames in human, ex ergonamu, e ex aquis pistios, verse 6, kathas abraham epistusen to theu kai Elogiste auto es de caiusunen. Verse 7. Ganascate arahati hoi ek pistios hutoi hoi es in Abraham. Verse 8. Produsa de he grafe hati ek pistios de caioi ta ethne hotheus pro you en gelisato to Abraham hati en you lage thesantai. En soi panta ta ethne. Verse 9. Haste hoi ek pistios you laguntai sun to pisto Abraham. Let's jump down to verse 10. Hosoi gar ex ergonamu esen hupal kataran esen gegraptai gar hati epikataratas pas has uk emenoi pasen tois gegramenois into biblo biblio tu. Namu tu poiesai auto, auta, verse 11. Hati de en namo, udes decauntai, para, I'm sorry, decautai, para to theo delan, hati ho decaios, ek pistios zesetai, verse 12. Ho de namos uk estin ek pistios, all ho poiesais auta, zesetai in autois, verse 13. Christas hemas in exagorsin ectes kataras tu namu. Genamanas hupo, I'm sorry, huper, hemon katara hati gegraptai epikataratas pas has krenamanas, krenamanas epikzulu. And verse 14, hina es ta ethne he eulogia tu Abraham genetai en Jesu Christo. Hina ten Evangelian tu pnumitas labomen, dia tes pistios. And we'll stop right there uh, at verse 14. Leave it off there. So let's um, let's pick up the reading where we left off two weeks ago. We had a, we took a break for the uh, for the uh, uh, festival of Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret and and uh, basically we were right in the middle of the fest of the uh, week of Sukkot. So we took a break. So let's pick up where we left off. On the top of page 84, we have this table in my commentary. And we're in section 10 called The Promise, Trust and Obey. The promise, of course, is a reference to the promise that God made with Abraham all the way beginning in Genesis chapter 12 and working its way up to kind of the zenith of the promise in um, Genesis 15 where Abraham believed in the word of the Lord. Remember, he cast his faith on a specific revelation of God in that chapter. But Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we know that Paul picks up on this theme of Abraham believing in the word of the Lord, Abraham believing in the Lord. Specifically, if you go back and read Genesis 15, the narrative, you'll see it's the word of the Lord that suddenly, Hine, showed up 
to Abraham in that passage and, and uh, showed him the stars and recounted the promise that he had made with them uh, earlier in Genesis 15 and uh, explained to him that the promise of multiplicity, the promise of offspring was sure to come to pass. And Abraham's faith rose up within him and God recognized that faith and uh, accredited that faith as saving faith. Because that's the way, we know that's true because that's the way that Paul uses the passage when he carries Genesis 15, 6 over into his um, books of Galatians and in Romans. Abraham's believing faith, saving faith, Abraham's faith was a saving type of faith. The same type of faith that we are enjoined upon as Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. And so now we're making this discussion about trusting and obeying, trust and obedience, or to use the fancy uh, theological terms that we find in Christianity today, um, justification and sanctification. Uh, trust would correspond to justification, that's the salvation part of the coin, and um, sanctification would correspond to obedience, that's the other side of the coin. The way I see it is really our salvation package, if I could use that terminology, the salvation package that we enjoy it through Messiah is essentially one coin with two sides that do not contradict one another. Both are important in God's economy. And so let's pick up the reading. We've got this discussion of Paul versus James. Recall that uh, some of the early uh, church fathers, such as uh, Luther, seem to have a bit of difficulty in reconciling these two authors. Well, we know that Paul talks about uh, it's the just that will live by faith, right? Romans 1, uh, I think it's 119, quoting the Habakkuk verse, the just shall live by faith. And yet James tells us in his book that faith without works is dead. So is it that James was contradicting Paul or that Paul and James were in disagreement with one another? Well, not at all. Here's how we can see this. Uh, let's pick up my commentary in this uh, uh, paragraph right here, the one I just highlighted on the screen. After, we, after examining the words that um, Paul and James use in their letters, faith, works, and justified, right? <clears throat> We've got context that's being developed from the, um, uh, the meanings that's being developed from the context meaning we can't just take the word that Paul uses for faith, even though it's the same Greek word, pistis, and we can't carry that directly over into James's book uh, and expect to find the same meaning always being conveyed, because James is using it perhaps in a slightly different context or slightly different nuance. Same thing with works, the Greek word erga, and justified, the Greek word dikaiosune. So we have to let the context tell us how the words are being used in the, in the respective letters. Let me read here. My commentary reads, quote, Paul emphasized, this is kind of a summary of what we just studied on Paul versus James, Paul emphasized that we are saved by faith in Yeshua and not by our natural or achieved ethnic status. Of course, for Jews, ethnic status was kind of the primary way of joining the earthly covenant that God made with Israel. Um, the fleshly covenant, the temporal covenant, the limited covenant. I'm going to use some of these words that we might find in the Bible or other translations. Uh, ethnic status was essentially um, something that was passed along from family to family, from you know when children, when parents had children. And in Paul's day, that was kind of the one of the primary ways of identifying with the covenant of Israel it was by recognizing Jewish status, ethnic status. Of course, for Gentiles, they had to. Uh, buy this. They had to purchase this status as it were through the proselyte ceremony conversion. 
James, by comparison, I write, emphasized that the kind of faith that results in salvation, right, the kind that Abraham had in Genesis 15:6, will necessarily produce works that show evidence of that faith. And that's why James goes on to reference uh, Abraham. We're going to see here in a moment as we pull up James chapter 2. So Paul was concerned with people adding anything to genuine faith that they believe is meritorious, I'm sorry, to spurious faith that they believe is meritorious for their salvation. In other words, from Paul's perspective, the focus was on how one gets into the family of God or how one gets into the people of faith. How does one join the people of the elect? How does one join the elect? And um, in other words, do we earn our way in? Do we get in because we're automatically because we're Jews? Are we grandfathered in because of our parents, so to say? Um, or was it something else? Of course, we know Paul teaches that we're, we get in to the uh, calling uh, to the uh, elect of God. We join the people of God through faith in Messiah. James, however, was concerned about people professing to have faith that is not really faith at all but rather a lifeless mental ascent to Messiah. So we got people who claim to have faith. They're not, they're not really, uh, 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 say, bragging about how to get in. They're really bragging about the fact that they are in and look at the works, look at the works that are following, things like that. It seems that James, as I understand it, as I read my commentary, James was attacking the, or refuting, if you want to use that word, he was attacking the first century Jewish distortion of the Torah's teaching on justification, right? Um, in other words, um, uh, wherein faith is some dead orthodoxy with no corresponding behavioral changes. So, in other words, if you really are saved, are you going to have works or not? Is there going to be fruit on your tree if you claim to even be a living tree? James is really focusing on that idea, that, that discussion of um, living righteous according to uh, a claim that you're making. Even Paul found it necessary to fight against this distortion of his teaching on justification. Recall from Romans 3, 8, Romans 6, 1, as well as Romans 6, 15, where Paul talks about uh, this idea of... Um, um, uh, do we make law, do we make void, I'm sorry, um, um, uh, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And, and this whole discussion about uh, being dead to sin and being alive unto God should result in genuine works that should follow after us. James pointed out that if a person has genuine salvific faith, works will follow after him, showing evidence of that faith, right? Abraham really did believe God Abraham believed God, and his works evidenced that fact. And that's what um, that's really what James is trying to highlight for us in the uh, passage that we're going to read here in a moment. If Abraham, if Abraham had refused to offer Isaac upon the altar, I like to think it would have demonstrated a lack of faith in God's promises to him. So let's let's see this James two. 21 through 24. Uh, let me pull it up here. James 2. And let me jump over to the ESV again. So we don't need really need the Greek for this. And let's drop down to near the bottom of the chapter. James 2. Um, 
Let's actually start in verse 18 and just read through the end of the chapter, verse 26. But some will say, this is James 2, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James throws down the gauntlet, right? You believe that God is one. You do well. This is James again. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And now James launches into this example with Abraham. And we just read Paul's um, use of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. Now James is going to do the same thing, highlighting Abraham as the model, as what we call the exemplar of our faith. He is the one that we can confidently point to in the, in the, in the Tanakh, right, in the Old Testament, as someone who had genuine faith and someone who had genuine works that followed after. What does James say, starting in verse 21? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you have to remember the word justified there is properly read as vindicated. Vindicated. It's 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 the idea that um, that uh, sanctific. I'm sorry. It's it's the idea that salvation is demonstrated to be genuine. Genuine. So Abraham was justified by works. It doesn't really say he was saved by works per se. Rather, he was his salvation was vindicated by the works that he was offering. Verse 22, you see that his faith was active along with his works. This is how you know because James qualifies verse 21 by saying, stating in verse 22, you see that his faith was active. So we know that it's a dynamic faith. And faith was completed. That word completed there in the English is, is um, parallel to verse 21 where he says, uh, justified by works, completed by works. So you see, faith was completed by works in verse 22 is parallel to um, justified by works in verse 21. They, that's the same concept. Let's keep reading verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed God <clears throat> and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's our quote from Genesis 15, 6 again. So James, just like a good Bible student, good Bible teacher, quotes from the Tanakh to prove his theology. And he's quoting from the same verse, the same Pasuk, that Paul is fond of using, which is um, uh, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified. Again, justified, the Greek word is is conveying the sense here of um, vindicated. A person is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, that is vindicated, by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And then the final verse, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. End quote. So we see then we've got consistency between James and Paul and between the New Testament, so to say, and the Old Testament, so to say. We don't have any, any um, picture of a faith that may have been present in the Old Testament, but, but it's not the same as the one in the New Testament, nor do we have any indication that the faith that uh, the New Testament writers enjoined upon us as believers today is really any different than the faith and uh, our, our, uh, justification and sanctification that the, um, the, the uh, believers of the Old Testament 
uh, participated in. It's really the same type of faith and faithfulness. Let's keep reading my commentary. I think we're going to be able to finish this section. We're on the uh, near the bottom of page 84. Let's just see how much more we've got to go. Mm, nope, we're not going to be able to finish this one tonight. It looks like this section is a little longer than I, I, I remember it to be. So we'll find a good place to stop. But let's keep reading my commentary. Uh, we're near the uh, bottom of page 84. In Shaul's letter to Ephesus, he also seems to be in opposition to Yaakov, a position which we will examine, examine shortly. Right now we're still in this kind of examination of Paul, and we're going to drop down and start examining James here in a bit. But when I say that uh, that Paul in Ephesians seems to be in opposition to, to Yaakov, um, James, uh, it's the, the key word there is seems to be, the key phrase. He really isn't, right? If you have two Bible passages that are contradicting one another, then the problem is with you, with your interpretation. It's not with the Bible. I firmly believe with a conviction that the Bible does not contradict itself in any place, at any passage, at any time. Rather, since God is the same author uh, from start to finish, he cannot contradict himself. Let's read. A cursory reading of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a familiar passage, seems to give us the impression that only by faith alone are we considered righteous, and that external actions, which assumed here to be obedience to the law, at least that's the way it's articulated in many church circles, it's, it seems to be that these external actions are of no apparent consequence to Hashem. The passage needs to be understood in its entirety to include verse 10. So, the entire context, uh, and as I understand it, affirms the biblical fact that our gracious gift of righteousness was indeed granted unto us, so that in union with Messiah Yeshua, we might live the life of good actions already prepared for us to do. And it's that familiar passage, for by faith, or for by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of you. No, it's not that. Is it that passage? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Let's go look. I think that's the one. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let's just pull it up. Instead of trying to quote it and butcher it, I'll just pull it up. Give me one moment here, Ephesians 2. I think it is what I was just saying, but let's just read it again. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Yes, it is. Uh, I've memorized it out of the KJV, but let's read the ESV. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man, no one may boast. That's why I said, just looking at verse 8 and 9, it seems to be that Paul's contradicting James, where James says, uh, faith without works is dead, and therefore we're justified by faith along with our faithfulness, or uh, we're justified by faith along with the works that are produced. But Paul here seems to be saying that, it, that it's not through faith, it's not through works, right? It's not a result of works so that no man may boast. But really, it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's context, and we need not misunderstand the context of the two writers. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 10, for, right, gar in Greek, which connects the, the previous uh, theology, the previous thought, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, right, unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God essentially has works, good works for us to do that await the moment of our salvation, we become saved so that we can do good works. You could say we become genuine trees so that we can bear genuine fruit, so that those around us can actually partake of the fruit 
right? To use a tree metaphor. All right, let's go back to my commentary and keep reading. Uh, I think we'll go for another few paragraphs and then we'll find a place to stop for the teaching tonight. Let's briefly examine what James has to say about faith and works, what Yaakov has to say. Let's see what his opinion is uh, before we draw some uh, conclusions. Sanctification and holiness, we're at the top of page 85 in my commentary. As I see it, sanctification and holiness, those, those words, are near equivalents theologically. Both words in their various forms in the Hebrew and the Greek are translated from the Hebrew root word meaning to cut or separate, right, to, to kadash, the, the, one of the root words in Hebrew, if I'm correctly uh, referencing the word kadash, from where we get the words kadosh and kodesh, kiddush, kiddushah, all of these familiar terms in messianic circles uh, convey this idea of the root word to separate, to set apart, to consecrate, to become holiness, I'm sorry, to become holy or to sanctify. The core concept of holiness, I'm sorry, I left off something there. So we got this, the root Hebrew um, words uh, referring to kadash, uh, to cut or to separate, and the Greek word hagiasmos, meaning consecration. So the way I see it is the core concept of holiness then is essentially separation and consecration to God. You can reference Leviticus 11.44 as just maybe one example, where at the end of a lengthy discussion about the uh, dietary restrictions that God was placing on Israel, God explains to them that the reason that God is asking Israel to make a distinction between what you what animals are to be regarded as food and what animals are prohibited as being regarded as food, and God says there it's to... Uh, um, is for you, Israel, to demonstrate my holiness so that you can be uh, seen as separate and distinct, just like I am separate and distinct from all other so-called gods in the world. And you'll find that Hebrew uh, word and concept there in uh, Leviticus 11.44. So let's keep reading. So basically, um, in, in, in the biblical model, separation as defined by God is consecration unto God. It's, it's separation from the world and the mundane and separation unto God and unto his holiness. Both aspects must be in view in order for the, uh, the word sanctification and holiness to carry their, the, the full weight that they convey in scriptures. Let's keep reading. In our culture, in our culture sanctification has really come to mean the pursuit of moral perfection. And I think that's, that's kind of unfortunate because you'll have lots of um, people groups, religious peoples who aren't really um, rooted in biblical truths and yet still um, will claim to be sanctified because they, they pursue some type of uh, moral standard, some moral perfection. Although the latter um, is included in the biblical concept of sanctification, right? Uh, moral perfection. It, it is a corollary, I think, to the idea of separation, the idea of being separated unto God. In other words, sanctification results in morality. I believe that's true. Sanctification does. But sanctification is not tantamount to morality. In other words, just because someone is morally upright doesn't really mean that they're sanctified unto God, is what I'm trying to say. There are people groups, religious groups, religious um, peoples that are essentially morally upright peoples, um, but it doesn't really necessarily mean that they're sanctified unto the God of the Bible. God is said to be holy 
because he is separate from creation and is morally pure in contradistinction to sin. So again, there are many people groups, many religious peoples who would think to themselves, well, I'm sanctified, I'm holy because I'm moral, I'm morally upright. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, and there are some, some secular people, non-religious people, who seek to lead morally upstanding lives. And I commend that pursuit of morality. But the point I'm trying to make is, if we want to be sanctified according to God's definition, we have to do it God's way. And that means separation away from the world, separation from the world and unto God and unto his only righteous standard, which of course is demonstrated in his only and unique son, Yeshua the Messiah. Let's keep reading. A reading from James chapter 2, which we just read verses 14 through 26, appears as an, as in my opinion, as an overemphasis of actions as opposed to faith. At least as a cursory reading. Perhaps that's why Luther had some problems with this book. But in reality, I say, a common understanding of these verses might give the reader um, the impression that works are more important than faith itself. Right? If you read it that way, it, 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 it almost sounds like James is preoccupied with works. And that perhaps Paul is preoccupied with faith. And that's why there's this seeming dichotomy as it were, between the two writers. Yet, I go on to say, Yaakov's audience, unlike Paul's, seemingly did not have a problem with an enforced conversion policy. Recall that in, in Galatians and in Romans, specifically in Galatians, Paul has to go to great lengths to refute the common first century notion that uh, Jewish Israel alone uh, shared a place in the world to come, held an exclusive audience with God based on their ethnicity, based on their uh, belonging as a people group, based on essentially on their election from God. The Israel believed that uh, Jews and only Jews essentially um, had uh, possession of the truths of God. And, there, and there's a little bit of truth to the, the, the uh, foundational aspect of that. But it seems like the, the first century had this preoccupation with conversion of Gentile to Jew, to the legal status of Jew, for the express purpose of supposedly bringing a Gentile into covenant relationship with the God. So, James's audience, unlike Paul's, didn't seem to have this problem with enforced conversion policy, at least if we just uh, read James' letter and try to gather the position of his readers from the letter itself. Instead, I go on to say, speaking of James's uh, listeners, or his, his readers, they seem to have had a problem with a dead faith that led them nowhere. Right? A dead faith. And so, Yaakov masterfully constructed a correct biblical theology that showed that genuine biblical trust always, and I've got always capitalized in my commentary, it always leads an individual into genuine biblical actions. And I think that this is in complete harmony with what Shaul was teaching. I don't think it contradicts what Shaul would, taught, would teach. Faith, in other words, I say faith must not be substituted for good works, and good works should not be substituted for faith. In other words, faith and works do not contradict one another. It's not faith versus works. It's not law versus grace. It's not justification versus sanctification right? I go on to say, moreover, good works do not replace faith. 
Good works do not replace faith, nor does faith cancel out the performance of good works. So let me just be straightforward. Faith and good works go hand in hand. One without the other is incomplete and lacking of true biblical righteousness, end quote. And I, I, I firmly believe that, that, that this is essentially what James and Paul are trying to convey to us as 21st century believers, right? We need to understand that God recognizes our works as vindication of a genuine faith. And that really, the, to use Paul's language, the only way we can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, quoting from, say, Romans chapter 8, the only way that we as believers can really fulfill the righteous requirement of the law is to first place our faith in Yeshua and cast ourselves upon His righteousness and then allow His Ruach HaKodesh, His Holy Spirit, to fill us and to empower us to walk into that righteous requirement that God expects of us, namely the righteous requirement of the Torah. And so to conclude for tonight's study, uh, I think um, I'll stop here, park the commentary here. Essentially, um, as we read through the books of Galatians and Romans and we find these seeming disparaging uh, verses about the law where Paul seems to say we're not under the law, we're under grace, or or um, uh, it's not by works of the law that man is justified, but by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you know, Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians 2, 15 and 16, 14 and 15, 16, uh, right around there, uh, Romans 6, 14 and 15, uh, Galatians 5, 1 through 5. I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of no value. The verses that Paul seems to be, where Paul seems to be downgrading or denigrating or or uh, uh, minimizing the, 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 the performance of Torah commandments and obedience to Torah, I believe they need to be um, understood and interpreted within the context of the uh, mode, uh, the motive behind his listeners and his readers. What is their motive for keeping the Torah? What is their motive for becoming obedient? And when we when we start to talk about motive, then we can easily begin to understand and separate that unbelievers, those who don't have a genuine faith in God and His Messiah, many times their motives for for being obedient to God, obedient to God's words and God's ways, is so that they can join God's family, so that they can become righteous, so that they can earn salvation through their good works. Their motives are in fact wrong. They're wrong-headed. They're impure. Uh, when seen through the lens of God's uh, standards of righteousness, their motives are wrong, and so that's why Paul is going to have to correct that theology. It's going to have to get them to understand that their motive for trying to join and their, their method and their motive for trying to join the people group, the group of God for trying to become saved is wrong. Their motives for keeping uh, the commandments are wrong. Their method of trying to join the people group is wrong. Um, and and that, that's really the best way to understand his letters. In other words, Paul's not going to have any problem with keeping the commandments once a person is genuinely saved. That's really what I'm trying to say. And therefore, we as 21st century Jews and Gentiles, seeking to become obedient to God's words today, seeking to, to follow after the Torah of Moshe, seeking to become um, obedient to what the apostolic scriptures teach us, 
we needn't shrink back, to use the language of the book of Hebrews, we needn't shrink back from obedience. We needn't shrink back from seeking to do good works. We needn't um, re uh, refrain ourselves from, from uh, casting ourselves onto the mercy of Messiah so that he can empower us to live a life that is obedient to the Torah of Moshe. We needn't teach uh, one another that the law is done away with and that we, that we needn't concern ourselves with keeping the commandments because, in fact, the keeping of the commandments, I believe, are the good works that James is referencing when he says, faith without works is dead. The good works that God prepared for us in advance in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, 8, 9, and 10, the good works include keeping the Torah of Moshe. Do you see my point? So we'll pick up on that theme next week, but for now, let's draw the commentary to a close. For those of you who are with me in the live class tonight via Skype, uh, once I dismiss in prayer, stay with me if you'd like, and we'll keep the microphones open for another 10 minutes or so. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for teaching us afresh, for bringing us once again to your throne, to the feet of the Messiah himself, so that we can sit and we can learn of his words, so that we can soak up uh, the truth that he is giving to us, so that we can dine on his flesh and drink of his blood, and so that we can be nourished, and so that we can feed on the bread that will cause us to never hunger again. Thank you, Lord, that he is the bread that has been sent, the bread that has come down from heaven. Bless you, Lord, for all of these good things that you give to us. You feed your people with goodness and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, and you cause us to be counted as righteous in your eyes. Thank you for your forgiveness. Bless us, Lord, because we stumble and we fail, and we so easily um, become upset by familiar sins. Help us to be empowered. Help us to um, be filled with the Spirit, but not to be drunk with wine. Help us to wear the armor of the book of Ephesians so that we can uh, defend ourselves, so that we can be um, strong against the adversary and against his wicked schemes. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be salt and to be lights and to be a people, a city set on a hill that are not ashamed, Lord, uh, to bear your name. Bless us as we continue to um, go along throughout the week. Um, strengthen us, heal us, Lord, and uh, allow us to be um, uh, to draw together once again next week. And we'll be careful to give you the, play, uh, the praise in all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. 
The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>